0: We are in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 9. 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 9. And y'all can't see them, but I've had a couple of new little friends join me about Wednesday. They're called floaters, and they're right over here in my right bionic eye. I have a bionic eye over here. I had a lens put in years ago from an injury, and so those floaters came around, and I've been swatting at yellow jackets that weren't even there all week long. But just like everything else, I'll get used to it. I've, I have taken that as part of being older, and, uh, and, it's, and it's not over yet, is it? All right, we are in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 9. Now, don't forget here, because we've been in the last two or three verses for some time, don't forget that King Hosea, the king of Israel, called Samaria here because of the capital city, is in prison. Now, when would you ever think a king of Israel would be in prison? Well, he is, and Assyria has made Israel its servants. And the children of Israel, in all of this, have responded the wrong way. Their king's in prison. They are now serving Gentiles whom they should have driven out of their country. And we're going to see and continue to see that they respond the wrong way. They rebelled instead of repenting. They rebelled instead of repenting. And did you know it's man's nature to rebel? Rather than to repent It doesn't come to man naturally To repent To say I'm wrong I agree with God Or I agree with my parents Or I agree with my boss That I've done wrong And until the rebel Yields to God's spirit Which enables him Then the rebel is going to be a rebel So don't get shocked As easy as it is to do, less so now than before, don't get shocked when you read something in the... I was about to say in the newspaper, but y'all don't do that anymore, do you? But you read something online about this horrible thing that happened here or there somewhere in the world. Don't be too shocked, because that's a sinner being a sinner. And it gets worse and worse, and so the rebel stays a rebel, unless... He yields to God's spirit. And not only did Israel rebel, but they tried to go undercover with it. You remember we studied how they secretly did those things that God told them not to do. And how foolish was Israel to think they could sin in secret, that God would not discover them. I'm going to take you back to what Adam and Eve did when they were in the garden after they had sinned. We find it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. After they sinned, it said this, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They tried to hide from God. They tried to go undercover when they had sinned, just like Israel did, except we don't specifically read where Israel hid. But they tried to do their sin, and they did it secretly. And that's as foolish as Adam and Eve trying to hide from the Lord in the very garden that he made for them. He made them. He made the garden. He made all things. And you know, some people sin because they don't believe God can see them. Some people sin because they forget God can see them. And some people sin and don't care that God sees them. But whatever your state of mind is, whatever your intent is when you sin, God sees you and he saw Israel in their secret sins. Israel walked in the statutes, in the laws of the heathen and in the statutes of their own kings that they'd made, which were contrary to God's law. And they did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. Now what made it easier for them to sin was that they feared other gods rather than the Lord. That's where everything falls apart right there. It made it easier to sin because both the heathen nations... And their own kings approved of and partook in those sins, even those secret sins. So they thought they were secret. But it was a lack of fear of the Lord that opened the door to all of that foolishness. Here's a verse that will show you that truth. And this verse also ties in with what Brother Fulton said has been preaching on Wednesday nights. It's beautiful. It's found in Job chapter 28, verses 26 through 28. I may not even have to teach on Job because I refer back to it quite often. Job chapter 28, verses 26 through 28. This is speaking about the Lord. When he made a decree for the rain and away for the lightning of the thunder then did he see it and declare it he prepared it yea and searched it out and unto man he said behold the fear of the lord that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding and we've studied wisdom quite a bit in the book of Proverbs on Wednesday nights. What did God tell man? He told man, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and departing from evil is understanding. They're connected. In fact, one causes the other, because to fear the Lord is the wisdom that leads us to depart from evil. It leads us away from evil. And to lose the fear of the Lord is foolishness. And it leads us into evil. There's no neutral ground there. The people who say, well, I just want to live and let live. I don't want to be influenced one way or the other by God or no God. You don't have that choice. You'll either be led to do evil or you'll be led to do righteousness. And rather than obeying the statutes of the heathen and their own wicked kings, Israel needed to read the Proverbs of Solomon and take heed to them. Did you know the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is found in the Proverbs more than it's found anywhere else in any other book in the Bible? Now wisdom is found throughout the Bible. And the fear of the Lord is taught throughout the Bible, but it's found as a phrase more in Proverbs than anywhere else, and I'm so glad we're studying it on Wednesday night. Now look back in your text in verse 9, if you've just joined us online, we're in 2 Kings 17 and verse 9, and I'm going to read the verse says, And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. We studied that. Here's the new part of the study. And they built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. They built them high places in all their cities. Now, a few kings ago, we went in depth about high places. But it won't hurt to be reminded We're looking at a string of unholy acts Israel committed And this is one of them And how instructive is it that these acts Are the same ones we've seen throughout our study of the kings Both of Judah and Israel by the way And you know, the book after Luke is called the Acts of the Apostles. And I think the verses we are studying, you could call the Acts of the Apostates. Apostate is a defector, one who departs from the truth. Remember, God never commanded high places to be built, did he? You can read the book of Leviticus, where the very in Exodus, the very detailed instructions about All that God wanted the children of Israel to build and to do when it came to worshiping him. He never commanded high places to be built. What he did command concerning those high places is that they be torn down. I'll give you one scripture for that. It's found in Numbers chapter 33 verses 51 through 52. It's Numbers 33, verses 51 through 52. For God told Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their pictures, and destroy all their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places. That's what he said to do to the high places, to pluck them down. Because if they ran the, the inhabitants of the land off, but left the high places standing, what would they do? They'd say, hey, that looks like a cool place to go to church. That's the church in the shade, or that's the church on the mountain. You remember that? But losing the fear of the Lord and fearing other gods leads to building the high places. And those high places lift man up, literally, rather than man humbling himself in the low places to seek the one who is actually in the high place. And it says in the text, we're in verse 9 now toward the end, where did they build these high places? In all their cities... From the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Not just one high place, but high places. And they stretched from the watchtower to the fenced city. And it wasn't in just one city, it was throughout the land, as we've studied and will study. All their cities. Now, do you see how contagious sin is? When one city does unrighteousness, then the next city wants to do the same. When one church leaves the old paths for new ground, then many churches will follow. Whether that one church that's leading the way is doing so scripturally or not. They'll say, hey... Uh, you know, the first or second or third so-and-so church down here is doing this. Why don't we try that? Why they've got their parking lot filled with cars, and people are always up there doing this or that. And those who leave the old path, and that means the scriptural path. That doesn't just mean the way I used to do it or the way my granddaddy used to do it. It means the scriptural path, regardless of who does it. But all who leave those old paths are going to come to a destructive end. The scriptural path, this is how you know that the path a church or a Christian is taking is scriptural. Here's how you know. It's lit by the lamp of God's Word, not by the dynamic light show in many assemblies. The scriptural path is followed when the church's music glorifies the Lord and sings praises to his mighty works rather than being void or empty of scriptural truth like some are. Some of the so-called worship songs. Now listen, I when I lead singing in that hymn book, before I ever send Sister Francis or Miss Glenda the songs that I'd like to sing. I read all the words, and I don't want to sing one that has something in there that's questionable doctrinally. And there are some in there. Not many, but there are some who have three out of four verses that I'll sing, and I'll X out one that has something questionable. But outside the hymnal, there are songs that are sung in the church that have been written in the last 50 or 60 years, and some of them are beautiful and are just filled with scriptural truth. And they don't sound like the hymns that we sing. But others are void of scriptural truth or teach error in the songs. And so regardless of the, the whether it's a hymn, whether it's done a cappella or with a piano or with an organ or with a guitar, I'm not talking about the rock and roll stuff. I'm talking about music that glorifies the Lord, that lifts up the spirit to God. If it's done scripturally, then it'll point to Jesus and it'll point away from man. It won't be a, a performance, it'll be worship. And the scriptural path honors holy living. It doesn't celebrate wickedness. It's not marked by the high places that men build. But it is marked by the worship of the one true God through his son and according to his unchanging word. Don't let somebody convince you that what they're doing in their church is worship just because they say it is. In fact, it's become trendy over the last couple of decades to call the song service worship. Well, it certainly ought to be. But people who are new to the faith or new to going to church may think, well, if we don't have that singing, we don't have worship. Listen, we worship the Lord, how? In spirit and in truth, whether it's praying, singing, teaching, listening to teaching, preaching, witnessing, or our daily walk. Our life is to be filled with worship. So it's not limited to the song service, as some may be led to believe. And when Israel built those high places, they were telling God, we don't need you. We have our own altars, and we have our own gods, and we have our own way of doing things. Now look with me in verse 10. And they set them up, that is, those high places... They set them up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. Now, an image is a pillar. It's like a statue. It has a certain place that, like a totem pole, you may, when you were a little kid, you may have seen an image or maybe you saw the real thing, a totem pole. You could go out to the... uh, We used to call them the wigwams there north of Fort Sill out in Oklahoma with my grandpa. and We'd walk around there and look at all that. But that's what an image is. It stays in a particular place. And a grove is a group of trees that's associated with idol worship when it's used in the Bible. In fact, those groves themselves were often worshipped along with Baal, In Judges chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us so. Judges 3 verse 7. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. So notice they forgot the Lord, and then they served the groves. They served Balaam and the groves. And that's what's happening here in our text. Notice in verse 10 where it says, Every high hill and every green tree. Now I'm emphasizing the word every in this case. Which is in keeping with the word all that we saw in our prior verses. In all their cities and on every high hill and under every green tree, this abomination... Of idolatry and Baal worship and grove worship was taking place and it brings us to a teaching point about Satan he is not content with just infecting one territory here and one territory there he's not content with just leading most people into hell In fact, he wants it all. He wants all the territory. He wants all the people to reject God. He's not happy that this group did, but this group didn't. The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of this world. Jesus calls him that in John chapter 14 and verse 30. He says, prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me Satan's kingdom is of this world and he will have all of it that he can think about it what king or what ruler would be content with reigning over only a part of his kingdom some people may be confused about that truth they may say, well, I thought God was over all his creation. Listen, God is sovereign over everything. The earth, the, all that is in it, and the heavens, everything. But the Bible tells us, and this, this is where man came in. Man was given dominion. Adam and Eve were given dominion over this earth. And what did they do with it? They handed it off. They said, here you go, Satan. Satan we're going to listen to you and therefore they accepted him as their ruler the earth was cursed man was cursed the ground was cursed everything was cursed and when jesus tells us that he is the prince that satan is the prince of this world then he is he's also called the god of this world but listen to what jesus says about this very thing don't be discouraged. Don't think, well, if Satan's in charge of everything here, we're hopeless. No, we're not. We're waiting. <laughs> we're waiting is what we're doing. God's people are. When Pontius Pilate was interrogating Jesus about whether Jesus was the king of the Jews, here's what Jesus said. This is in John chapter 18, verse 36. And I want you to listen to where he says his kingdom is. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If his kingdom is not of this world, and Satan is the prince of this world, he's the prince of the power of the air, he's the God of this world, all of those things the Bible calls him, there's a reason for that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, if my kingdom were of this world then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Aren't we glad his kingdom was not of this world because had they, had his servants fought to keep him from going to the cross, then we're hopeless, we're condemned. So I'm glad his kingdom was not of this world. He said, but now is my kingdom not from hence, that is not from here. So two times in that verse Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. Remember, this world this world system is going to be judged and Jesus is going to redeem all of his creation. In Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 the following declaration is made. Revelation 11:15 And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now this is a future event the Bible is teaching us about. And he shall reign forever and ever. So it's only after Jesus redeems his creation... That the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. He's not going to reign forever and ever over a corrupt earth that has its end in the melting and the heating and all of that that takes place, the elements destroying the earth, all of that judgment. That's not what he's wanting to reign over. He's going to redeem it, and then he's going to reign over it forever and forever his disciples wanted him to reign over a corrupt earth whenever he was here on earth they said when wilt thou again restore the kingdom to israel he said it's not yet in fact the time is not for you to know so don't fret and don't be confused when you have a misunderstanding about something like this, about, well, who is the, the prince of this world? Let the Bible clear it up for you, and you'll be fine. Don't get on the internet and ask people to clear up your confusion for you, because then you'll be worse off than you were when you started, when you hit send. I wanted you to hear those verses in John and Revelation, so you'll understand why it is the children of Israel built these high places and groves everywhere they could, and why this idolatry was not confined to just one little area, but it spread to the land in every city. And understanding these truths will also help you understand how our country has gone from being a nation that feared God to one that hates God. There's a remnant in this country and in this world who do not hate God, but who love God through his Son and who are joyful that our redemption draweth nigh. and We won't have to put up with this anymore. Some historians write that the pilgrims who came to America did so for economic reasons, not primarily for religious freedom. If you go back and read, and again, history is only as good as the historians who write it. So I trust God's word, everything else I look at with a stink eye, and I say, hmm, I wonder if that's true. But at some point, we have to depend a little bit on what has been written, or we just won't know anything, will we? But if you look back at some of the historical writings, the pilgrims left England for Holland for religious freedom. They were under the Church of England and all of those hierarchies and rules and this and that. And so they went to Holland and then they left Holland and came over to the United States. But I want to read you some things here in just a moment. When they left Holland for the United States, it wasn't called the United States, it was called the New World then, William Bradford, who was one of the great pilgrim leaders, commented on why they were leaving Holland to come to the United States. Now, these are the religious reasons. Uh, There are other reasons he listed as well. But he said, quote, "...the great licentiousness of the youth..." End quote, in Holland In other words the loose living the sinful living that he and the people who followed him from England observed among the youth in Holland and he said there were evil examples and that there were manifold temptations in that place Now, William Bradford was a religious separatist. I guess you could classify him as a Puritan at some point. And he didn't like that loose living that he saw in Holland. Particularly how that loose living rubbed off on their children, the example that it set for them. When he was in England, he detested those rituals and the hierarchies in the Church of England. And in America, he, and by extension the people who followed him, desired to live a a pious, simple life. And he was the governor of the Plymouth Colony here in America for over 30 years. Now I want you to contrast William Bradford with the current occupant of the Oval Office. Actually, he's Somewhere else more often than he's in the Oval Office, 374 days of vacation during his term so far, but that's for another article. In contrast, William Bradford, not only with that occupant, but all of the wicked men and women in high places, whether it's in the houses of Congress, in the cabinet, the Supreme Court, on a state or on a local level. Satan is the prince of this world. And he was not about to let William Bradford's vision of a simple Christian life lived out in this new world. He wasn't about to let that alone any more than he let the religion of the one true God remain and spread out throughout Israel in the Promised Land. He wasn't going to have it. And all the people had to do is say, no, Satan, we worship the one true God, and him alone do we worship. They wouldn't do it. But do you see how Satan is never content to just leave this group alone and leave that group alone? To leave Central Baptist Church alone, he's not content... Even though he knows that the people who come here by and large love God's Word, they don't need all the entertainment and all the extraneous things that are added to the church. They come here to preach and, or to hear preaching and to sing and to pray and to encourage one another in the faith and to love one another, to let God love each other through them. And that's good enough to raise the children here and to uh, witness to people the simple gospel. You'd think, well, maybe Satan will just leave us alone. We're not very big. We're not hurting him any. No, he doesn't want us doing this any more than he wanted Israel to worship the one true God. Don't ever forget that. Now looking in verse 11, continuing with these evil acts the children of Israel did, and there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away from before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. And just as we have seen the children of Israel do from one king to the next, they burn incense in those high places. As you may remember or have learned before, burning incense speaks of prayer. It's associated with prayer. When the seventh seal is opened in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, listen to what verse 4 says. This is Revelation 8, verse 4. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So the prayer and the incense are associated with with each other the incense represents the prayer just like it did in the tabernacle that altar of incense those that incense altar was constantly letting off the smoke from that incense meaning those prayers were going up to God prayers going up to God it's unceasing the bible tells us to pray without ceasing but the incense the children of Israel burned in these days was not to the Lord their God. Because if it had been to the Lord their God, it would have been burned on the altar of incense by the priests like God ordained. This incense that we're burning, or that they were burning here, and we can conclude if it was incense, it was prayers too. This incense, these prayers were offered up to other gods. And it reminds me of these so-called interfaith movements with interfaith prayers where sometimes even literally Christians hold hands with Muslims, hold hands with Buddhists, hold hands with all manner of unbeliever. If a Christian prays with such people, who are they praying to? Who are these unbelievers praying to? Listen, we don't need to pray with unbelievers. We need to pray for unbelievers. Big difference. It's not that we hate them. And don't let the liberals tell you that because we disagree with their sin that we must be haters. We don't hate them. We love them. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for sinners. He doesn't hate us. I'm glad he loved us. But don't mistake loving unbelievers with associating with unbelievers, with praying with unbelievers, with doing and worshiping how they worship. And it says in verse 11, at the end, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. Now the word provoke in this verse, is the same Hebrew word as the word anger at the end of the verse. So, with their wicked works, they were angering God to anger, or provoking Him to anger. It's the same thing. When it comes to sin, I've heard and read people say things like, well, God will understand. I looked at the word understand and its variations in the Bible, such as understandeth and understood and understanding, and so on. And at no time in the Bible does it ever say God will understand if you sin, as if He's okay with your sin, depending on the person or depending on what your reason was. In fact, the Bible says God is no respecter of persons, He doesn't care who you are, His law is the same. And what the Bible says about how God sees sin is actually quite the opposite. Listen to Hosea chapter 8 verse 13. Hosea chapter 8 verse 13. And Hosea is talking about the sin of Judah and Israel as we've been studying on Sunday mornings. And he wrote, they sacrificed flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings. This is God speaking through Hosea and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Does it say right there, and God understood? Said he accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins, that means punish their sins, they shall return to Egypt. God didn't say it to Israel in this case, and he calls them Ephraim in this passage, it's okay. I understand why you made many altars and sacrificed flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings. No, that verse said, the Lord accepteth them not. He did not accept those offerings. If you study how God deals with sin, it's pretty simple. God hates sin. And there are two things he does with sinners. He punishes them, the unbeliever with eternal death, and the Christian with chastening. Or he forgives them. And there's only one way he forgives them. He forgives them because he judged this sin in the person of his son Jesus who took our sins upon him. When he sent him to die on the cross. But God does not deal with sin or with sinners by being understanding in the way that some think. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 And then put the letter B, the letter B as in boy, right after 11. That tells you I'm giving you the second half of the verse. It says God is angry with the wicked every day. Does that sound like he's accepting of the wicked every day? Does that sound like he understands their sin and winks at it and says, no big deal, it's okay. It's a Friday, you're tired from work. It says he's angry with the wicked every day. It does not make him understand and excuse their sin for certain people or situations. I'm going to read you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 29. Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 through 29. And it's going to amaze you. If you've been keeping up with our study here, it was roughly 700 years before this chapter when God told... He not only told Israel what they would do, but He also told them what the results would be. And even better, He told them what their remedy would be once those results took place. Here's what He said about 700 years before the time we're reading about. When thou shalt beget children and children's children... And ye shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. Man, it's like he took what we just read and backdated it 700 years before. Provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. That ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. What happened to them? They were besieged and taken captives, weren't they? Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods. The work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But, now that's the situation they're in right now, isn't it? They've been scattered among the heathen. They've been put in these different cities in Assyria. They have served other gods. They've made these images just like God told them 700 years ago they would do. But listen to the last part of that Deuteronomy passage, where God tells them, but if from thence, that is from that situation, thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. In our text, and the verses before it, Israel, Samaria, as it's called here, the city, has been besieged, their king imprisoned, and they are captives in Assyria. And they're scattered throughout the land. They're worshiping idols. They are the perfect candidates for the repentance God wrote about in Deuteronomy, or God spoke in Deuteronomy. They're perfect candidates for repentance just like we were when we were lost sinners. Just like we are when we sin. Verse 12 For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. For, remember, that means because. Because. They angered God because they served idols. That's the primary reason God was provoked. All of the high places, all of the incense burning, all of their wicked works sprang from leaving God to worship idols. In fact, the fact that they sacrificed to these idols, they burned incense, they bowed down to these images, shows us they were more obedient to their idols than they were God. If we look back at the seven, or look back at the steps that led to Israel serving idols, it'll teach us something. They went from seeing the idol. You remember when King Ahaz in Judah saw the idol of Damascus? He, he saw it. He beheld it. They went from seeing the idol to substituting the idol for their altar that God commanded. That's what Ahaz did in Judah. Then to sacrificing to the idol and now to serving the idol. Four S's. That's easy to remember, isn't it? They saw the idol. They substituted the idol. They sacrificed to the idol. And now they serve the idol. And that's how it goes. And God knows it better than anyone. And next week, we're going to take those four things apart, especially focusing on the first one, seeing the idol. But we're out of time for today, so let's pray. Father, we're thankful for what you've taught us. We're thankful that your word contains all the truth that we need to live the Christian life and that we don't need to turn anywhere else or to anyone else. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to have that simple faith in your word that it is enough and that when it's properly taught, believed upon, and lived by, that we find our greatest joy and happiness. And Father, we pray that we would have this same outcome during our next hour that you would enable our pastor to teach what you've taught him and to faithfully expound it to the people who listen. In Jesus' name, amen.